The world's changing, boys. Time we change, too. Listen, Peter, forget the flying monster guy. There are people who handle this sort of thing. I'm so sick of him treating me like a kid. But you are a kid. This is my chance to prove myself. Don't mess with me. Because I will kill you and everybody you love. Hello and welcome to the Electric Shadows podcast with me, your host, Rob Daniel. And as always, I'm very happy to say I'm joined by my high-swinging, web-slinging, learned colleague, Rob Wallace. Thank you very much. What a lovely introduction. Um, uh, it's a pleasure to be here, as always. Um, should, we, should we get the plugs out of the way? Let's get the plugs out of the way, and I will remember to do the iTunes plug, which I always forget. But do you want to plug your stuff? Uh, yeah, you, uh, if you enjoyed the podcast, and we hope you do, um, you can find my writings, my musings, at... Uh, of all the film sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com, uh, and follow me on Twitter at, at Robert M. Wallace. Uh, there's also an of uh, all the film sites page on Facebook that I think this is the first time I've ever mentioned. I did not know that. How long has that been there? Yes. Oh, really? Yeah. I should get around to doing an Electric Shadows one, but I haven't yet, so I should do that. Um, oh, that's cool. I'll give it a look. Okay, so. I, what are my plugs? Yeah, please go to electric-shadows.com to look at my film musings. You can follow me on Twitter at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. It rolls off the tongue. And yeah, if you like this podcast, and let's face it, it's been a minute and 20 seconds and we have just been talking about plugs and surprise at social media, so how could you not love it? Um, you can subscribe to us on iTunes at iTunes, go to the podcast bit and search Electric Shadows podcast and you'll find this. And that'll all be good. So, today we are talking about Spider-Man Homecoming. The pointedly titled Spider-Man Homecoming. Which is the first proper Spider-Man movie within the Marvel Cinematic Universe because they came to a deal with Sony over the use of Spider-Man. I liked it. I thought one of the reasons it worked well was because it was in a universe being made by people who understood the character more than, say, Sony have for quite a while now. And it existed, it, you didn't have to set up the universe, it already it was there, you just, and, and the fact that this isn't an origin story, Captain America's Civil War has a degree of the origin story when sort of Tony Stone turns up and goes, you are this, you are da 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 Peter Parker, and everyone goes, okay, I know who that is. Strange enough, this is the third time, this is the second time they've rebooted it, it's the third iteration of the character. In, at that point, a space of like 14 years, was it? Yeah, it's one of those things where Spider-Man, the Amazing Spider-Man, despite having two films called The Amazing Spider-Man, hasn't really been amazing since 2004. With yeah. Spider-Man 2, yeah. uh, the Sam Raimi film with Tobey Maguire. And it's like The Amazing Spider-Man, the Andrew Garfield film, and Amazing Spider-Man 2, which I thought was marginally better right up until the ending when it utterly ruined itself with quite a cynical move. They just really failed to capture the fun and energy and just the joy of the character of Peter Parker, I thought. and Which is a shame, because Andrew Garfield, who kind of... His Spider-Man, his, his Peter Parker was kind of like the nice guy, cool kid. 
He was, that's the thing, is that he was cool. Yeah, he's the kid that, you know, you'd known at school who was, you know, really popular and really smart and really talented, but you still liked him because he was just a good guy. And, you know, you were really happy that he was together with Gwen Stacy, played by Emma Stone, and they had great chemistry, and, you you know, you wished them the best of luck as a couple. And and I do, I've got a degree of um, affection for The Amazing Spider-Man 2, if only because it's the first film we ever talked about. Yes, that's right. When Rob came into Sky, he had the uh, good fortune of being interviewed by me, in which I've told him since is the easiest job he will <laughs> ever have. You answered all the questions about the job very, very well, and it was just a wonderful bonus for me that we could then talk about The Amazing Spider-Man 2 as well and my opinions on it. So uh, that kind of showed the... Uh, well, yeah, it's, it, it's all about content. I need to know your content knowledge. Yeah. And then the, yeah, and the current season of Game of Thrones. And the current, was, that's right, yeah, Season that's right, four yeah. at the time? Season, yeah, it was 2014, so whatever one it would have yeah, been. Yeah, about season four. This is season seven this year, so that works out. Yes, so for that reason, I will have a... Always have a spot, have a soft spot as well. But yeah, the film itself, not great. Not great. No, really not. And, and I always thought, well, Spider-Man shouldn't be the cool kid. The whole point is that he's not cool. He's picked on at school, but... In secret, he's a hero. It's the big nerd fantasy. He's, yeah, he's kind of like a bit of a... He, in Tobey Maguire films, he's, he's, he is this dweeby, unfortunate. I mean, his first... His opening voiceover for the Spider-Man films is basically like, this isn't going to be happy, you might not want to watch this. Yeah, you this think you know, know the story, story, but yeah, this... And that was the first one. You think you know this story. It's like, no, we don't. You haven't told it four times yet. Well, I think that was really interesting in terms of everyone knew the Spider-Man story and that we knew that Peter Parker was bitten by a radioactive spider and rather than all his hair falling out and him succumbing to a terrible, uh, terrible... Radiation uh, sickness. Radiation yeah. sickness and uh, and his white cell going through the roof, whatever it does, that uh, he actually got superpowers and an incredibly buff body. And that was big... And You, know, every- you did know that story, but it hadn't been done on screen for so many years because it was the late 70s, wasn't it, when there was a Spider-Man series where he actually was a photojournalist. Remember that one? I mean, yeah, you wouldn't have been around then, obviously. I, I'm aware of it. I'm especially aware of the theme tune, which uh, gets a reprise in Spider-Man Homecoming, a slightly, you know, a re-orchestrated version by Michael Giacchino. Oh, what's that one? Um, the old Spider-Man. Did the series have that as yeah, well? Yeah, I think that's like the, bit the series invented that, I think. Oh, really? Yeah, I think that's, that's what where... it was. Um, so I thought it was, it was the cartoon that did it. I think mm. the series invented it. Oh, fair enough. Um, I could be mistaken. Please, you know, uh, feel free to, or, uh, dear listeners, to comment. Uh, yeah, to tweet us if we're on where that came from. All we could do is Google it. Spider-Man, there we go. Toei? No, oh, this is me. That's Spider-Man. Yeah, this is Spider-Man. This is the... Um, oh, yeah, he had a robot. Spider-Man like, had a robot he used to. He had, like, a Gundam he used to climb around inside of. Have you seen that one? No, it's, in, it's mentioned in Ready Player One. Oh, right. Oh, okay. Here we go, 19th... Okay, The Amazing Spider-Man was the series. It was short-lived. It's one of those that I remember it being fantastic. It was. And then I watched it again. Nicholas Hammond, that's the guy who played Spider-Man. So I remember this being the really cool live-action Spider-Man that criminally only ran well, for 30 episodes, which is quite a lot. Um, because you watch it again, and it looks incredibly cheap. It doesn't work. He's, a, he's an adult. He's... A photojournalist, I think, for the Daily Bugle, is it? Yes, the Daily Bugle. It's the day yes, the Daily Bugle. Um, I remember reading a story about it in Lookin magazine during the eighties, where they said 
it was actually a real suit that they made that they actually made a Spider-Man suit and that's what enabled him to walk up walls and stuff which is all shit and it's weird that you could just lie like that because you watch it now and it's clear he's on a wire uh, as in his hands are not even touching the walls and also surely that's just asking for trouble when some kid thinks he's built himself a Spider-Man suit and plummets up, plummets up you know, out his bedroom window that's right that didn't happen but it could have done and no do you know what no it did happen because apparently you can just yes, say this it stuff did, now. it did happen yes a kid a kid did that and prove it didn't yes it did that's right so anyway so then there was that then there were the um, series the, uh, the cartoons during the 80s which were very good then James Cameron was going to do one in the early 90s wasn't he and he was going to be the director of Spider-Man and Michael Bean I think was uh, was talented at one point as being Bing, Spider-Man because it was still going to be an adult Spider-Man because they thought yeah, we need to have an adult in this film so it was going to be an adult Spider-Man which which Michael Bean would have been a very interesting choice it's like Spider-Man it makes sense when his uncle is killed he just got serious PTSD as Michael <laughs> Bean seems to have in every role he plays that's right like the haunted stare <laughs> the haunted Spider-Man like you'd know it was him coming, you know, through the mask because he's got that thousand eye stare. They'd be like, "Peter, is that you?" No. The, the, the incredibly tormented. No, look at my eyes. <laughs> look at the life in my eyes. My eyes are so happy. Stop looking at me. Yeah. So anyway, so effects technology. James Cameron decided just wasn't there to uh, to realise his Spider-Man vision. So, but the script, because I think it was still a Sony film, the script was then used as a template for the modern Spider-Man and the Sam Raimi Spider-Man. And one of the things that was carried over from the James Cameron script into the Sam Raimi script, or into the Sam Raimi movie, was the organic web-slinger. The fact like, that it like, was like him producing... Organ- I like the organic web-shooters. Oh, because like they, they partly turned the whole commentary on him being a teenager, and his body's just created, started creating this sticky stuff. That's right, and that is really it, isn't it? It's like he's firing all these arcs of silver rope around everywhere and it's uh, unlike most people who can actually swing around on it and as we've all know those of us who tried it you can't swing around on anyway that's fine <laughs> um, so, and also the organic web thing of being a thing of like well this kid's at high school how has he got the resources and just the genius intellect to uh, create something like this yeah it is, it is great that it's the I mean I guess you know somebody you know, he's a, he's a smart kid. That's why he gets to go to the lab, and that's why how he encounters the spider. But yeah, it is really fortunate that a kid with the ability to create organic web shooters ended up with Spider-Man powers. <laughs> yes, that's right. Because like, with, like if it yeah. had, if that happened to me as a kid, I you know my background's in, in, in you know in the humanities. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so I would have been writing long essays about what it was like to be able to walk up a wall or crawl up a wall. And yes, if if only I could produce spider web, but. Not, really. not, not in my lifetime. Yeah, not in my lifetime, so I'm just going to have to crawl up walls and freak people out by doing it. Anyway, so that's a potted history of Spider-Man. Then, of course, we have The Amazing Spider-Man, The Amazing Spider-Man 2. The Amazing Spider-Man 2 is one of those weird films. Reminds me of when my nephew couldn't get his head around the fact there wasn't going to be another Golden Compass film because, well, there's still more story to tell, and the film ended without all the story being resolved, so therefore there has to be another one. And having to explain to him the, the vagaries of, of Hollywood economics, and a film has to make this much, get a sequel, and it didn't, it didn't reach that level. The Amazing Spider-Man 2 ends mid-scene, doesn't it? 
it ends with what's going to be the fight at the beginning of the next one. Yeah, and, but the very beginning of the fight that's going to open up the Amazing Spider-Man three. That's literally him leaping and hurling himself at the Rhino. That's right, and you know that's going to be the first shot in the Amazing Spider-Man three, the film that never actually got made. So it's like, my God, is that the first time that a film didn't just end on a cliffhanger? It actually ended mid-shot of the next film. And it also set up the Sinister Six, which Sony wanted to do as a, kind of like a suicide squad, I suppose, in terms of all the all the baddies forming their own gang. And so you'd have Doc Hawk and the Green Goblin and the Vulture. Rhino and, and Scorpion and... All of the Spider-Man enemies were going to team up and be in their own film. That never happened either, but there's quite a bit of the film... There's like a whole scene when, they, when you just see all the different things within Osborne's laboratory. So yeah, so that's really interesting, but they... They didn't make enough money, and they made about eight hundred million or something like that. It kind of, yeah, it's a Batman v Superman flop. It is. That's right. Yeah, it's one of those where they. But 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 then I read they spent two hundred million just on marketing the film. So yes, it, it was a flop, a multi-million dollar grossing flop. With, um, with Spider Man Homecoming, we're going to let the proverbial black cat black cat out of the bag. Um, we liked it. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. We should talk about the Spider Man film some point, shouldn't we? I know. Just think. Talking about sort of you know the the long term process, Spider Man, the amazing uh, sorry, not the amazing Spider Man. Gonna have to get that in my system. Uh, Spider Man Homecoming, it's the best Marvel film in a while. In fact, how long you know how? Well, I think it's the. We'll go into that in just a second. So then you have the Amazing Spider Man two, that doesn't do anything. So then um, Sony team up with Marvel and you get Spider Man Homecoming and. Come on, it's Spider-Man Homecoming. That's a title that means something other than just the fact that there's a homecoming dance in the film. And this is a Spider-Man film that's good. The promise from Captain America Civil War is made good in this film. They understand the character, they understand the world they're dealing with, they understand the levels of humour that you're going to have in there, the, level, uh, the levels of peril, the character that Peter Parker is. What's your question about? <laughs> in fact, we, we, we can hold back on this a little longer, but you know, when what would you say it's the best Marvel film oh, since? Sorry, yes. um, well, I really enjoyed Captain America Civil War. And so I'd say, so since then we've had Doctor Strange and Guardians of, of the Galaxy. I think that Spider-Man Homecoming is effortlessly... Better than either of those. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I know that lots of effort went into making all of these films, but you've watched By it, hundreds just, of dedicated... <laughs> You know, craftsmen and craftspeople. But just the breezy charm of Spider-Man Homecoming versus the leaden, unimaginative blah, of Doctor Strange and Guardians of the Galaxy 2. I'd say... It's sort of generic origin and un- and fairly unambitious sequel. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is. What was the film before Captain America Civil War? I think it uh, would have been Ant-Man, wouldn't it? Yes, indeed. And oh my God, it's better than Ant-Man. As well, a film which I just do not get the love for that film, but it's Edgar Wright light. Yes, it would again be really interesting to see what was done with those films. Yes, you're right. It was Ant Man and Avengers: Age of Ultron, Guardians of the Galaxy, The Winter Soldier. So actually, looking at this, I'd say that the, the past few films, it's still Captain America films are the good ones. Yeah, just the Captain America films are really good ones. I like Thor: The Dark World and Iron Man Three. I know that lots of people didn't like Thor: The Dark World. I did like Iron Man 3, that's true. I liked Iron Man 3, yeah. Oh, you came back. That was 2013, though. I mean, you know. So they've been, they've, they've been producing solid but uninspired films. I think the Captain America, The Winter Soldier is the only five star Marvel film that we've had so far. But Captain America Civil War, I really liked. I know you weren't as keen on that one. I, I've got my, my, my friend Will um, did a piece on it. 
He doesn't like Captain America Civil War or Batman v Superman. He actually prefers Batman v Superman because he thinks Batman v Superman had the potential to be good, whereas he has got he's got real issues with the politics in Captain America Civil War. Right, yeah. The fact that you are either totally pro intervention or totally pro isolation, which are both really right wing stances, and they're being presented as kind of the equally balanced with no middle ground. Yeah, I kind of think that's it's an interesting thing that in terms of putting politics onto a superhero film, and it's one of the things that think you kind of should do it because these films are really big they've been seen by hundreds of millions of people they reflect society they might influence thinking but, but, it's, but it's well, no, it's weird it's like because I was talking about this with a friend of mine it's like some of the you know recurring plot issues with these films and it's like well are we are we even the audience for these films because oh no yeah no, no we are definitely the audience for these films um, I, I was about I was going to uh, I was going to get onto that um, because in the case of the last couple of Marvel films especially, they're all 80s influenced. Yeah, that's, As in, like, yeah. they're not just aiming at the kids, they're aiming at the ki- They're not just aiming at the, the new generation of kids, they're aiming at those kids' parents who are, you know, a few years old, or a bit older than me, who and, kind of grew up, you know, maybe a decade older than me, who grew up during the 80s. And, you know, because obviously Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, it had uh, Kurt Russell in it, you know, probably one of the, the great 80s icons... Uh, Pac-Man and Hasselhoff cameos in uh, in Thor, well, Thor Ragnarok which is coming up the title is just ripped off and, like it looks like it's been ripped off an arcade machine yeah so we'll get on to that in just a second then because there are some things there where it's like well the plotting of these films is aimed at a much more or a much less sophisticated audience in terms of what they would accept in terms of getting from point A to point B in a narrative arc well let's go through the plot of Spider-Man Homecoming so Peter Parker is Spider-Man and has been Spider-Man for some time. He, 15-year-old Peter Parker. Yeah, 15-year-old Peter Parker, regular point. He is coming to terms with his powers. This is set uh, a few months after the events of Captain America Civil War when he joined in the, the big fight at the airport in Germany. Where was it again? Lufthansa? Yeah, I think that might have been. Um, anyway, uh, so about Leipzig Airport. Leipzig so he really wants to be an Avenger. He is under Tony Stark's tutelage, but Tony Stark has put Happy, played by John Favreau, in a distinctly charge, unhappy Happy, who is now having to babysit Peter Parker and, and make sure he doesn't get into any trouble with his powers. Because you know, Tony Stark has essentially brought him out, you know, given him this 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 life changing mission, and now effectively sidelined him. It's very much he almost you know not it's not verbatim, but he basically says, "Don't call us, we'll call you." He's allowed him to keep the suit still, hasn't he? I think it's like the that this is a, like a training period for him. I think that's the way that Tony Stark sees it. Uh, that he will just you know, deal with low-level crime, like I don't know, muggings and oh, bike theft and totally stuff. undangerous crimes. Totally undangerous crimes. That's right. Yes. Well, yeah. But Peter comes across some low-level crooks who are using some particularly high-level weaponry. Uh, some stuff that seems to be influenced by the alien technology from the Avengers in the Battle of New York there. So he's wondering, well, you know, where's he getting all this stuff from? That leads him to discover the Vulture. And what's his name again in the Adrian film? Adrian Toomes. Played by Michael Keaton, who is the Vulture, who is the big bad in this film. Well, he has a really good arc, I think, in terms of... He's someone who's brought in as a, as a 
As a as contractor. A, as a contractor to clean up the mess, isn't he? Of all the of all the battles that are happening, all the superhero battles yeah. that are happening. And he's this working class blue collar guy who's got his own business but it really runs from contract to contract so he really relies on these government con- um, city contracts and when the government and Tony Stark sort of step in and say we're taking and it makes total sense that they take charge of the cleanup because this is alien tech and it's something that sort of plays a lot into the into shield into shield in this you know in the series and with all these artifacts and it's also the department of damage control isn't it which, which is, is an early 80s comic or something yeah, like that yeah which was actually suggested as well they they did a tv series a couple powerless yes and initially that was meant to be about damage control oh was it yeah but then it, they, 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 they turned it into a like a yeah actually oh, sorry yeah. sorry not actually about damage control it was meant to be about the equivalent of damage control in the DC, yeah, in the DC, in the DC universe, I can't. It might. I can't remember what it's called or if that's officially a thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, essentially, he gets completely undercut and left in this financially precarious position, where you really you understand why he's doing what he's doing. Yeah, because he's got these guys who rely on him for their paycheck. So he begins to. It seems that he has a certain affinity for making, yeah, for understanding technology, and he uses. His knowledge to make weapons. weapons based on this alien technology. So Spider-Man discovers this and starts investigating it, and is warned not to do that by Tony Stark because it's very dangerous. He goes against that, and lots of mishaps and things and action and adventure ensue. Yes, quite. And all of this in the context of what is essentially a John Hughes coming-of-age high school dramedy. Well, Ferris Bueller's Day Off is actually referenced, isn't it? It's, it's visually referenced at one point. Well, yeah, my, my review was called... Uh, my review was... I, I didn't end up publishing because it was... So I thought it would be far more, uh, more rewarding to have this conversation with you. Uh-huh. Um was called um, Spidey's Day Out. But uh, the AV Club wrote a review in which they win because they called it Perks of Being a Wall Crawler. Uh, okay. <laughs> That's, yeah, you, you've won, you guys, you've won yeah, that one. Yeah, it's not bad, is it? So, I really liked... Spider-Man Homecoming. I really liked the humour in it. I thought that the action in it was was done very well. I thought that that the big effects set pieces were exciting. I thought it was interesting to see a Peter Parker who has his powers, but isn't very good at being a superhero yet. He's quite clumsy. He thinks he's okay with his powers, but he really isn't. He just keeps causing lots of property damage and things like that. That's the thing. He's, He's impulsive. He's reckless. He's a team, yeah. yeah he's... But well-intentioned. Yes, that's right, yeah. Uh, uh, Tom Holland is great. Yes, he is, yeah. I... Uh, Tom Holland, British-born Tom Holland, I think. British-born, like 21-year-old Tom Holland. Yes, disgustingly talented Tom Holland. Has a very good American accent in this film and completely sells you on teenage Peter Parker. And, uh, and on a complete tangent, if you can believe such a thing, our colleague, Sky colleague, Ben, went to school with him. Oh, did he? Yeah. All oh, right. He was like a few years below him. Oh wow! Yeah, in Kingston. Oh, I'll ask about that tomorrow. Yeah, um, but oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> one, one, one thing I love about him is he is this sort of shy. No, sorry, not sorry, shy, self-effacing, overexcited fifteen-year-old, and he, all his emotions are writ incredibly large. His fear and his jubilation. I mean, the the opening the opening scenes. He he's literally got his camera phone out, you know, and he's ta- and he's and he's taking snippets of stuff. Yeah. Um, I also love that how you know, given how 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 large his emotions are, it he is singularly unable to hide his feelings. Like there's one scene in this where he is called upon to do so, and it's like, has there ever been 
a superhero, you know, somebody somebody with an alternate identity, with a secret identity, who is so singularly unable to play it cool. You always have it. We can't spoil it. No, I think I know which bit you mean. Yes, that's that's the thing. Is I think he really gets the character of Peter Parker. He is a friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man, and you're right. Yeah, he's really enthusiastic. He's really well-intentioned. He's just not very good at not. You're knocking down people's gutters and stuff when he's swinging around. Or tree houses. There are some moments when people are startled by him and you think, yes, this is a masked man <laughs> running around at night and leaping out in front of you. Clearly, he's clearly, you know, recognise, recognisable. As in, like, people know, kind of know who he is at this point. Yeah, that, I suppose so. But there, was, but there is a bit when, when a couple of people scream at him when he's... Because uh, if it's at night, you can't see the costume as well. And I think also you would just... You'd be like, come on, it's Spider-Man, but who the fuck is this guy? Yeah, this, this, this guy may yeah, be Spider-Man, um, but who the fuck is that? And as well as his sleuthing and his crime-fighting, he also, of course, he's a student, so he has, I think, a really, really good relationship with his best mate, Ned, played by... Jacob Batalon. Batalon, yeah. who was in... What else was he in? Because he was really good, and I didn't really recognise him from anything else. He's he's not really, he hasn't really done much, anything. Right? I think I think no, he was. He hasn't, a... no. Yeah, he was really good, and I really like the way they just got the whole origins out of the way with him saying, "So did it hurt when you got bit by that spider?" It's like um, a bit. It's like all oh, right. I wonder if I'd want to put up with that pain if it meant having all those powers. Do you think that the spider's dead? All right, okay. <laughs> and. I thought, well, that's just that done now, because everyone knows how he became Spider-Man. We don't need to do that anymore. And that's the thing, they have this great relationship, and Ned's sort of just plodding along, and he's just really, really, like... He's sort building of, his Lego Death Star. Yeah, and just <laughs> happy. And just a kid, that's the thing. Like, and and you totally get why these guys are friends. Yeah. And and that's the thing, all the kids, the all the quote-unquote kids in this film... Yeah, it's all the early 20-somethings in this film. You know, the, the place where he... Where he uh, the, the name of the high school is the Midtown Science and Technology School. And it is this sort of almost platonic ideal of a of an American high school. You know, we've got like 80s John Hughes-style American high school in the mm. present day, because it's got these these very particular pastel walls and, and the lockers and the homecoming dance banners gone up. Yeah, yeah, and, yes. and and the teachers, you got this like the, I can't remember the name of the, the character, but this long-haired sort of hippie decathlon coach. Well, I was played by the great Martin Starr indeed. from Silicon Valley. Yeah, and He's... and the bored PE teacher who keeps popping on videos with Captain America in them. Yeah, that's another really nice touch. Is that Captain America has made a series of inspirational pep talks uh, for students, and they get played at various points during the film for him to keep students on the straight and narrow with his inspirational pep talks and I thought that was a really, really nice to touch and even I mean that's a th- yeah yeah you're right there aren't any real bullies in this film even Flash Peter Parker's arch nemesis at school he's on the same decathlon team as uh, as Peter isn't well, he he's, he's just a bit of an arsehole he's not a physical threat I mean like because the original Flash Thompson was a jock you know he's yeah, the guy who right. used to slam you know he used to lock people, slam Peter in the locker and the fact that he's played by Tony Revolori Yes, who's who was in Grand Budapest Hotel, and yeah, and then, and then you've got you know uh, you've got the love interest who's who's called Liz, and uh, she she's the leader of the team decathlon, and she's pretty and she's popular and she's just somebody who's really got it together. Yeah, and uh, and yeah, the fact is that this this is a world. There, there's a sequence where um, Peter's where, where Spider Man is sort of swinging through people's backyards, and they've all you know they're all they've all got people doing stuff in them, and they, you know. 
And just like that, the high school feels really alive in a way that the Marvel Universe sometimes suffers with because it doesn't feel organic. It feels like when they're showing you little bits of the world beyond that it's so calculated because it's like, okay, we need to have something out. We need to have an extra, you know, an extra character there to sort of say, well, these, these aren't the only people in the world. That's the thing, yeah. I think when you look at other Marvel films, it really is just a num- like a small number of people who don't have anything to do with the Avengers initiative or be a shield or something like that so Pepper Potts but even she is all part of it now isn't she so but 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 you look at this and it's only really Tony Stark and Peter Parker and Toomes the vulture and um, and the various henchmen well even the, uh, so there is one yeah, yeah there are, there are a couple of henchmen I think the Spider-Man fans will will be recognize their mm-hmm. names but it's mainly like Aunt May played by the lovely Marisa Tomai. Yeah, the, the, the newly sort of hot and kooky Aunt May. Yeah, it was a really, really nice way to go with the character. But most of the supporting characters in this film are Peter's friends and peers. And it does, it, it just brings a whole other life. That's, that's the really important thing about Spider-Man, is that he's doing this really important stuff over here. Then over here, his mates don't have those same worries so they're just a bit annoyed when he doesn't turn up for stuff or things like that and the fact that, the fact is that you know he um, yeah he's got to find a way to balance it and he starts getting you know, he, get, he gets he gets annoyed trying to do school work because he wants to be out there being an Avenger you know, yeah, the, way, the way I think, I think I've been thinking about it is like he's kind of like the extreme version of the kid who just wants to, you know, the, the, the smart kid like the smart kid you know who could, who could go on and you know do academic do things academically and um, sounds a bit judgmental, um, but you know the kid who's got who's got you know the bright future ahead as a scientist, as a researcher who just wants to drop out and join a band. Yes, and uh, and sorry, and um, of course um, Kenneth, of course Kenneth Choi <laughs> as Principal Marita, and he he was of course he was one of um, Captain America's original gang in the original in the first Captain America film. Oh, was he? And there's, there's a photo on his desk of him of Kenneth Choi at, in uniform as that previous character and he's obviously meant to be a descendant of him oh that's really cool because I I saw that and then completely forgot about that photo because I yeah, I made a note of that and thought oh what is that there's also Donald Glover's in this film and you know his character's linked to the wider Spider-Man thing vaguely he's... I'm not going to say it because it's so good when you find out and actually for anyone who hasn't seen the film who might get it I don't want to spoil it for them because it's like oh wow that's really good and there's some really good things in there I mean there are a number of character twists in this film. There's one that's everyone goes, "Oh, did you, did you see that coming?" But there are other ones where there are, I'd say, I mean, that's a, that's a twist as well. And the there's about four character twists in this film where you find out that these people are fit into, part of the bigger universe yeah, or, or fit into the mythology in a way. That's that right. Quite yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Definitely. Because that's the thing. This film, because the Spider-Man mythology is so well known to cinema audiences already, you can pay that sort of stuff off without having to be really I mean they're not just you know they're not incredibly implicit they're not very wink wink they're not completely wink wink nudge nudge with it no they, not they don't have to spell stuff out it's really really take it or leave it I mean I was sitting next to um, well my friend Ian who was on the JFK podcast that we did knows infinitely more than I do about all this stuff and he was laughing at some stuff and I was thinking right I need to remember to ask him why was he laughing at that and why was he laughing at that so there'd be posters in the school where the wording used is important wording for you know, the Spider-Man universe other characters would have said that at some point Liz who is the girl that Peter's attracted to in this film Spider-Man or Peter Parker's first girlfriend was called Liz wasn't she was it, yes, yeah. uh, it was, was it Liz and then Gwen Stacy and then Mary Jane was like yeah, I was thinking right okay so that's 
that's interesting. I didn't actually know that there was a Liz. Um, yeah, clearly just don't know enough about the early early Spider-Man mythos. Um, There's one thing though, and, and again, I think I just want to want to seed this now so we can return to it. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I think this film doesn't fully get the i the no, the idea or didn't convincingly portray the idea that with great power comes great responsibility. And I will say let's return to that in a bit because that is the that's a really good point about this film and it's one we have to talk around a little bit because there are some spoilers in there that we don't want to give away but just to say the thing I thought this film did really well was that it brought it bang up to date and located it within the Marvel Cinematic Universe obviously by having Tony Stark in there but also things it references to the Battle of New York to alien technology to Captain America being in there as well it was it's gone beyond the early Marvel films where you would think, oh, who's going to be the cameo in this film? What, which Avenger's going to cameo in this film? It does feel organic, yeah, because it was actually a, a moment... It took me like kind of a few seconds of Captain America being on that video for me to realise, oh yeah, this isn't a Captain America film, this is a Spider-Man film with Iron Man in it. That, that's the thing, this has become an organic universe now, and that's, that's an achievement. I mean, I'm running a bit hot and cold with Marvel Cinematic Universe films now. But when they do that sort of stuff, I think, well, actually, you have built something here that's really quite impressive. So I like that. I like the fact that it did... that it explains why you can have such an amazing suit, although we'll get on... There are some... There are some counter-arguments to that being a good thing that we'll get on to. And I also like the fact that it then goes right back to the early beginnings of Spider-Man, so you have Liz. Also, of course, there's, there's a moment when Spider-Man's in trouble... And he kind of gets out of it in a way that is a direct reference to one of the most famous moments yeah. in, in a Spider-Man comic as drawn by Steve Ditko. I mean, there, there is genuine peril in this film. Partly, I think, because it manages to sort of locate Peter's emotional journey from moment to moment, from beat to beat within those scenes. It's not just like Peter swinging about, getting in a bit of a scuffle... It's not brought. It's very focused on well, Tom Holland's performance. Mm, they, yes, yeah, it, it allows him to be scared, defeated, worried, and plagued with self doubt. And it I also lets him sort of chill out and just try out different types of webs. Yeah, it does all those things there. And it's if you get the character of Spider Man right, then you then your film will work. And I really liked the scene. The Washington Monument is it called the Washington Monument? Yeah, the Washington Monument. Yeah. The big needle. And I didn't actually know until this film that you could go up it. I did not know there was a lift inside it. So I was like, well, that's interesting. And he climbs it at one point. You've, you've got to wonder, like, how did they install the lift? Was there just like, or was it originally just a massive shaft down the middle of it? Like, what the fuck was that thing meant to be? It's a massive hollowed needle. You know, are you helping God shoot up? Yeah, that's right. It's like, was this used by by giants we don't know about or something? Did behemoths walked the earth at some point and this was one of their needles that has now just fossilised and they put a lift in it. We may never know. I mean, I mean the, film, <laughs> the film very clearly establishes the film actually spells out how the Washington, Washington Monument got built yes, as, as part of a joke. That was really clever I thought. That was really funny. There's also a couple of moments that are quite political and just like a couple of throwaway lines that are quite political in this film that I, that I yeah, thought was quite good. So go on. Very quickly, there's one sort of meta thing that I, uh, that I that somebody pointed out to me is the fact that Jennifer Connelly voices a character in this film. That's right. And you know, of course, who Jennifer Connelly's husband is. Paul Bettany. Paul Bettany. We won't spell it out any more than that. Yeah. But, but after you've seen the film, it's like, oh, that's really cute. Yeah, I did like that. 
And then, yeah, there's a scene when Bide is on top of the Washington Monument, it's in the trailer. And he's a superhero with superpowers, but he's incredibly high up and there's wind whipping around him and you realise that he's quite scared because he's so high up. It's like, yeah, just because he's a spider or has spider powers doesn't mean to say that he's not going to get hurt if he was to fall off. And it's like, so yeah, I kind of, yeah, I like those sort of things where it's like, actually you are, he's not indestructible by any means. And I thought that the Vulture was great. The Vulture, I really like the way they incorporated the original Vulture costume design into this character's costume. It's, it's kind of like this high-tech mechanical, it's got it's got rotors, and he's got this pilot helmet with these green LED eyes. Yeah. And, he, and when he sort of swoops in or sort of like, you know, picks Peter up and sort of, uh, there's there's a genuine sense of like panic of him struggling, and he lets out this sort of screech. Yeah, it's, it, it's actually frightening. It's uh, it's good to have a character, a superhero character who is a teenager, because then he can screech and yell in quite a high pitched way when he gets picked up by the big Birdman. Obviously, Michael Keaton played a character who was Birdman, and now he's playing another Birdman, and it's I- like wow. If Birdman meant that you got the part of the vulture, then that's a good thing that Birdman did, even though and I, and we dis- um, I differ on this, but I have no time for Birdman. Of course, this is his third flying-themed superhero role. Well, sorry, flying in terms of the inspiration behind the character. Because his, his, his Batman. Very, Batman. Yes, indeed, yes, of course. And then, and then Birdman being a, a fictitious character. And yes, indeed, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah and, indeed, and the fact yeah. he's called the Vulture and the character's a scavenger. And, yeah, I, and, I, and I just indeed. love Michael Keaton because he, he can smile and it's kind of like, and he's, and he's got incredibly crinkly, you know, sort of craggy now. Yeah. And he can smile and he's got this, you know, this, 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 he's like, you can tell, the smile's not necessarily not sincere. He's still thinking of killing you. Michael Keaton is incapable of phoning in a performance. He gives a performance no matter what film he's in. So if, I think at this point that's just Michael Keaton. I think that's yeah, just what he's like. Indeed, they just didn't. He didn't even know that cameras were rolling at that point. They just said, "Just keep filming, Michael. We'll build the script around what he says." And there's a really good scene when he's talking to a henchman who's being quite uppity, and there's a look of like real menace on Michael Keaton's face because this guy's well, he's talking in a way that means thinking, "Well, you are kind of playing with fire here, mate." So there's a look of menace on Michael Keaton's face as he's being told this stuff by this little henchman. But also a feeling of, but like a look of slight confusion. Incomprehension. Yeah, it's like, why, why would you risk this? We've got it quite good here. We are making money. Why would you risk this just for your ego? And it's this real kind of like mixture of, of menace and incomprehension, yeah. And it's like, well, that's great. It's great that you've got this actor here who will always give a good performance no matter what the character and he is an interesting character in this because if the city hadn't have cut his contracts then he wouldn't have done any of this it's so therefore it's yeah, people good people being forced into desperate acts because of an unthinking bureaucracy and good people like Tony Stark making mistakes yes indeed it's or, or failing to account for because you know Tony's always had that degree of arrogance for to him and arguably, I mean, you could say that he's got too much confidence in Peter, and that's, pro- that's probably true. You could also just say that he just doesn't really have time. You know, he's he's doing, he's doing, he's doing like weddings in India, and things. I think that you that you get the impression that he doesn't have enough time, really. So he's saying to Happy, "You look after this guy or this kid, and when he gets a bit older, then I'll I'll come in." Um, I, I don't think. I think. I think a lot of the low key stuff is absolutely lovely. The um, one of the Loki stuff. <laughs> the uh, the um, the Spider Man, the friendly neighborhood Spider Man stuff, like when he's when he's running around and stopping bike thieves, and 
giving out and then giving giving directions to old ladies. I mean, like, yes, I could right. I could I could have potentially I could have watched a whole film of that. And there's and there's one shot in that which is very classic Spider Man, which is just him chilling out on this fire escape, and there's the New York dusk and the yes. New York skyline behind him. That was great. And I think the the cinematographer is a guy called Salvatore Totino, who did. I'm trying to think. I I I haven't I haven't noted what else he's done, but well, he, let's look him up because. I it, thought it, it was a really, really well shot film, um, and and that's the thing. You know, there are lots of very talented craftspeople on this film. Okay, so he he's done. Oh wow, uh, yeah. he's done the Robert or whatever his name is film, the Dan Brown film, The Da Vinci Code, and uh, Inferno, yeah, and Inferno and Angels and Demons. It's well, comes in all of them. He also did Cinderella Man, which I think that was set in New York, and that was a really good Russell Crowe film. I think it was set during the 20s or 30s. During the and, Depression. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So it would have been the late 20s, early 30s and had a real tactile sense of the city at that point. And I think you get that from from this film as well. He did Everest as well, which was like another extreme environment movie. So yeah, yeah, you can do this stuff. Because I think, I think if you know, take from that, from that perspective, Marvel has fitted everybody to this film incredibly well. Like John Watts, the director previously did Cop Car. Yes, we didn't talk about uh, we talked about the directors yet, have we? It's Marvel hiring interesting directors um, rather than people. I mean, yeah, because he really hadn't done anything other than Cop Car, so to give him Spider-Man Homecoming... As his uh, second yeah, film. Um, or third, because it's Clown. Oh yeah, Clown, yeah. It's a... which, is, which is a horror film that I've not seen, I have to admit. Cop Car I really like, though. Because uh, this tense little thriller about two kids making, like, two kids fucking up quite badly so they steal a police car to go on a joyride the only thing is it's owned by Kevin Bacon and Kevin Bacon is a incredibly corrupt cop and there is incriminating evidence in the police car and he tries to get the police car back from these kids and then of course he has to decide what am I going to do with these kids when I get my car because I'm in some really really dark shit here and they can't know about it and it's yeah, it's, it was a really good film. It's yeah. and it's, it's incredibly tense, isn't it? It really yeah, yeah, indeed, definitely. It's uh, yeah, and it's again, hour and twenty eight minutes. So this one was was two hours thirteen, but I thought was very well paced. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you can sometimes I I don't know how how long the Guardians films are, but I find those quite a chore by the end, particularly Guardians two, which I thought was just just like oh, this end already. Whereas this one, I I could have watched more of it. Shall we talk about your issues? with Spider-Man Homecoming. Yes, and I think I can do these in such a way that I don't necessarily have to reveal any spoilers. Cool. Um, my issue with Spider-Man Homecoming is that he keeps repeating the same mistakes and not taking advice until the film essentially has to reward him for it, and only then does he kind of change. And... I mean that's the thing. He wants to help people. He, you know, it's clear. He, you know, besides, you know, apart from wanting to be an Avenger, his heart is clearly in the right place. But Peter ends up escalating situations. You, you know, I know it's obviously it's, it is bad having weapons on the street, but those weapons are never more dangerous than when Peter Peter Parker's Spider Man is inf- interfering with the people who are using them, and like, there's no collateral damage without him being there. And, like, it feels like this is a film that could be resolved far more neatly and it's one of those things where it's like it's the first superhero film where I kind of wish that at some point they'd just, they'd just go home and live their lives <laughs> like stop fighting the baddie go home put your feet up make a cup of tea 
because you don't need to be doing that and you're not really helping. In fact, you might be making things worse and there are other people who are better, better equipped to deal with that and you need to trust them. I mean, one of the things... Uncle Ben, this isn't, this isn't an origin story, so Uncle Ben doesn't appear. In fact, he's not even really mentioned. I mean, they, they kind of circle around him, and him and Aunt May kind of circle around him in a, in a conversation at one point, and then yeah. don't bring him up. But I think that would really help sell the idea of why he wants these weapons off the streets so badly, because obviously Uncle Ben was killed by what presumably an illegal gun. Yeah. And that would make sense of like why Peter is so invested, you know, these weapons need to be taken off there, they're dangerous, as opposed to just... This kind of feeling like, what like a trial where he wants to prove himself. I kind of I think that's a good point. It's an interesting point. I don't entirely agree with the fact that nothing gets learned and that he gets it has to be rewarded for something without changing. I think that the film is is a series of events in which he he basically has to understand that he can't just do this with an intention to do good and infectious enthusiasm and actually he doesn't know what he's doing and and doesn't know what he's dealing with so he can do he can be handling things that are actually incredibly dangerous and inadvertently he could be uh, creating a dangerous situation I think as the film goes on there's a realisation of that up to the climax where I think he actually does act to, to divert that and I think there's the thing is uh, when you, when you're talking about the thing that he does to divert my issue with doing that is he puts himself in the situation where that is taking place but which if he'd failed to divert it he would have been a monster no because I don't think I don't think it's one of those things where he is responsible for the at the end I think he's he's not responsible for what's happening at the end he is he's coming in as someone who's trying to stop what's happening I don't think it would have been if it failed to divert it, it would have been a monster. If it failed to divert it, it would have been a tragedy. Okay, that's... But, but I think you're right. There needs to be a scene with Uncle Ben. And I think... It, are you not really mentioning Uncle Ben because you are you want to do a bit of stunt casting in a flashback and you haven't got the actor or you don't know who you want to be Uncle Ben for a flashback or something like that? I don't know. But you're right. I think it would have been one of those things where if they'd have just landed the point a bit a bit harder that Uncle Ben was killed by someone on the street with a weapon. Therefore, he will try to get these weapons off the street, no matter what it kind of does in terms of endangering people. It would have carried a bit more resonance and it wouldn't have seemed um, quite as him just blundering around. And you can read that in because you all know what happened to Uncle Ben, but but you're right, I think that the film needed to say it a bit more explicitly. I don't think that that detracts from the excitement of the scenes. I mean, I actually think that the the best scene for me in terms of excitement was was the Washington Monument. The Washington Monument's great. That's because there are people immediately in danger. Well, I think it's also because it, it it really puts him out of his element for the first time. It's because it's 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 just so high. It really lands just how high it is, and he looks like a spider in those wide shots where he's like a tiny figure going up this thing. He looks he looks like a tiny spider, and I thought well, we've not really seen Spider Man shot like that before it's normally very very close up and it's normally you know the eyes are the thing that you focus on and he's looking around as he scales up a building the film kind of gets some mileage out of putting him out of his element because there's this part where he gets out to the suburbs and and finds himself faced by an environment that doesn't really happen in the inner city and he's not quite as agile and I won't spoil the moment because it's it's very funny and yeah, the film kind of goes, well, you know, he, he he does have limitations. And 
yeah, my my issue is that Peter doesn't really seem to figure them out. At least not at least not acknowledge them until the denouement, until after sort of the climax has happened. But that's the kind of hero's journey thing, and I think I mean it, it, this film could have been better if it had put a couple of things in there because there was there was another point that you said if it had done this, it would have landed that better and it wasn't the Uncle Ben moment I can't think what it was now but oh, it was it's, a, it's by putting making sure that there are always people in, me, in, in immediate jeopardy or an immediate threat of harm when he interferes in order for him to have a reason to be stopping it that, that's, that you know he people should never be in more danger because he's interfered or he shouldn't repeatedly in repeated incidents be in danger not more danger because he's interfered kind of just in danger because he's interfered there should always be people you know if there are people already in immediate peril then he's got a reason to get involved otherwise he's just escalating shit but I think there's a point and we again we can't spoil it but there's a moment on the boat where I think you could argue that and I've talked very very vaguely here you could argue that what happened would have happened anyway because of another thing that happens that isn't in the trailer but yeah I, I think like another scene of him just stopping I don't know bank robbers or car thieves or something and there's actually a really good uh, a really good scene where he he mistakes uh, someone for a criminal when it's not and it's yeah. like well that's quite good um and the Stanley cameo is really, is really good as well. I mean, we referenced sort of John Hughes films earlier. Uh, and in John Hughes films, the parents are always kind of killjoys to an extent, or generally, you know, they, 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 there is a pattern of that. In, and then they say, you know, you read um, Tony Stark is kind of being a surrogate dad. They have that almost hug in the trailer. Yeah, yeah. This, if this is a John Hughes film, it's a John Hughes film where the parent is really kind of totally right. Not just like, not just kind of, you know, but they need to go out there and do their own thing. It's one of those things. Like, if he just kind, if he just followed Tony's advice, things might actually have been resolved less destructively. I'm not entirely sure. I think that there are certain things that would, if he hadn't got involved, the vulture would have. There are things would have escalated because of what the vulture was doing. It's kind of made clear that the vulture isn't someone who can be stopped by a regular department. It's you, know, you need a, a superhero to fight this supervillain. But it's it's an interesting point though, and it is one of those things where sometimes they do these films do write themselves into a bit of a corner. I mean, like yeah, none more egregious than the Amazing Spider-Man two, in which Spider-Man actively ignores and uh, breaks a deathbed promise from the end of the first film in the second film, and what he's warned is going to happen happens, and it's the worst thing ever, and it only happens because he broke a deathbed promise. It's like that's really bad writing. That's why the Amazing Spider-Man one and Amazing Spider-Man two, soft spot aside, just they don't work as well because it's like, well, you shouldn't write like that. That's just breaking the hero rule book one I one. But anyway, I'm looking forward to seeing another Spider-Man movie. It's um, after the Avengers four. Is it? Yes. Okay. Cool. It's going to be the first film of the next phase. In oh a, wow! Okay. When yeah, so post phase three. So, so phase three of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which began with Captain America: Civil War, um, we now have. So we've got Spider-Man. Sorry, I'm going through all of it. So Captain America: Civil War. We've got Doctor Strange, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two, Spider-Man: Homecoming. So we've had all those. Next up is Thor: Ragnarok. Black Panther is next February. Then it's the first Infinity War Avengers movie, which is May the fourth. And be interested to see what they do with those because. 
that needs to be the biggest thing you've ever seen, doesn't it? For them to yeah, indeed. For when they've been building up to this for years and years and years, and then it's Ant Man and the Wasp. But it'll be interesting to see what the world looks like after Infinity War Part One to mm. see if there's anything left there. Then it's Captain Marvel. Then it's untitled Avengers film, which will probably be called Infinity War Two. And then we're into post Phase Three, so Phase Four, the Ant film. Uh, so Ant Man will be in that as well. Sorry. Yeah, the first one there is um, a Spider-Man Homecoming sequel, and then apparently Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. So it'll be interesting to see what that looks like after the Infinity War movies. Hmm. Okay, so all in all, very interesting. Quick talk about the other cast members. Have we talked about... Well, I think we've talked about all of them, really, haven't we? Um, oh, Donald Glover's in it, and he's very good, as always. Um, yeah, Donald Glover, who's getting a lot of Disney work at the moment. Yes, indeed. What else were you? Between this and the Han Solo film, which he's playing under Carizian, and he is the voice of Simba in Liking. Yeah. So yeah, they, he is a he is a Mouse House favourite right now. Cool. Well, I would say slight reservations aside, I think the Spider Man Homecoming. Okay, I st- I st- was, yes, is a bit of a triumph, really. I still think really enjoyed it. Still, yeah. Apart from my couple of my issues with the hero's journey, I really got on with it. I thought it was incredibly entertaining. Mm, yeah, and it's well worth staying for the mid end credit scene and the post credit scene which is very funny and we will say no more so it's as of recording the 6th of July so we're over halfway through the year so the perfect time to do our top films of the year so far yeah I think we're trying to try and keep this brief you know brevity brevity is the soul of wit (laughs) we'll talk for an hour and we normally come in at about an hour hour and twenty so we've got twenty minutes for this it's been a really good year so far We've had a number of five-star movies this year, so this is a, a rundown of our top tens of the year and a couple of honourable mentions in no order, because I've not had a chance to agonise over what comes in at number one, two, three, and well, through to ten, and if I take that out, does that mean that I still have to keep that in there even though it's lowered down? Should it be something? I don't know. Anyway, in what you could call navel-gazing, but I choose to think mm. of as just a review of the year so far top tens of the year so well one of mine has to be Jackie yeah Jackie has made my top ten but it's currently sharing a position with another film they're both sort of right on the right on the edge um, but yeah Jackie it's, you know we've talked about it it's sort of you know it's a portrait of a woman a real you know a, a historical figure at the worst moment of undergoing a, a personal apocalypse yeah so this is the Pablo Lorraine film with the Oscar-nominated Natalie Portman as Jackie Kennedy, as she was then, Jackie Onassis, as she would become. Uh, in the a week or two after the Kennedy assassination, and anyone who has listened to the JFK podcast, and I recommend you do, little plug there, should um, would know this that we've talked about this as a dream film. This is a film that has this really woozy feel to it. It has... Um, uh, so Mika Levy does the score, and it's it's an unusual score, as you would expect from someone who scored Under the Skin, the Scarlett Johansson film. Um, but this is a, I think, a really amazing film. It's a, a film about a woman who was the first television first lady and was thrust into celebrity and had to be had to be a movie star next to her movie star husband, and then she had the worst moment of, of her life in a very, very public way and was captured forever on film. 
and how do you deal with that? How do you deal with the with the admin of having to arrange your husband's funeral when he's the most powerful man in the world, as well as when the transition of power and the trans- That's right, and the, and the transition of power and the fact that you are going through trauma because you were right next to him when he was murdered in this really really violent way. And it is like a dream film. It has this real, we- you know, as I said, a woozy dream logic that is punctuated by moments of real stark terror and violence when when the horror of the assassination comes back to her. And I thought it was a really, really amazing film. So that would that's going to be in my top ten come year's end, I think. If it's not, then we're going to have you know, one of the best years ever. Um, so what's one of yours? I mean, the, the one that's sort of holding position for that would be The Guard, the um, recent Sofia Coppola remake, re-adaptation. Uh, of, it was originally made back in 1971 as a, a Don Siegel-directed Clint Eastwood film. Yeah. And it's about a basically a woman's, a young woman's school, preparatory school, or I think it's a young women's school in the South at the height of the Civil War, and one of the little girls without picking mushrooms finds this wounded Union soldier and takes him home. And it's all about the impact of having that man in the house, this man of you know, sort of uncertain loyalty who smiles and jokes and flirts, and all these young women, you know, and the and, and all the you know, who he all treats as individuals, and all have these repressed desires. And the film, and this version, kind of switches the focus onto the women. And it, it's when it, when it started off, I was initially a little bit worried because it kind of did a slightly more art house less. Because the, the original film opens with those wonderful sepia shots and the camera suddenly zooming in to pick out details and the sound of cannonade and horses. And this film did a much more art house sort of sedate. I was worried, is it just going to be that? Is it going to be the more pretentious version? But no, it really it, it helps that it's got a, a lot of great performances in it. Um, you know, uh, not, 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 not the biggest by any means, but Elle Fanning, who is, you know, if this film makes it into, it does make it into my top ten, along with another film I'm going to mention, and along with The Neon Demon, should have been in three, three top ten films of mine in the last two, two years. years. Yeah. Um, but there's also Colin Farrell, who plays the man, who does have this sort of dark-eyed charmer, and he does, and, and this thing that he is being being sincere, while in manipulating them, and you know, to what extent can you condone that because he's just trying to survive? But the but the absolute standout, and I reckon I'd be surprised if he doesn't, she doesn't get some, some sort of nomination for this, is Nicole Kidman, who plays the school mom, who's who could just be very prim and proper. You know, she she elocutes in French and has a habit of saying things in very cutting ways, but she, Nicole Kidman has this flash in her eyes, and she gets the, the sense of what you know drives this character. She also has one line in it, and I urge you to see the film, and you'll know the line when you hear it, that's possibly the contender for the line of the year. It's just oh, one of those wow. lines, as soon as it gets uttered, you're like, that is perfect. Wow. But okay. in any case, yeah, it's a really interesting study of male-female power plays in a certain time and place. Well, that's interesting, because I really like the original film, and I'm intrigued by this. I have to admit, I, I'm intrigued because of the cast. I'm not a fan of Sofia Coppola. I quite like The Virgin Suicides, I haven't liked any of her other films. I mean, I know we've talked about this before, but Lost in Translation, I think, is just one of the most overrated and one of the most overrated films about uninteresting people in, I think, the best city on earth. And it's like, go outside and you'll stop being fucking miserable. I hate looking at rich, privileged people being miserable in Tokyo so you're because, not, for fuck's sake. So I guess for, for some reason you're not a big fan of Somewhere. Uh, no, God, no. No, 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 no. None of the films. <laughs> um, what was the other one? Oh, Marie Antoinette. I mean, come on. That was booed at Cannes, but the beguiled won Best Director at Cannes for it, didn't it? So this, and that's the thing, is that I think this might be a good film. This might be the film where I have to maybe re-evaluate, re-evaluate 
the fact that the SFA card block can make a, um, a decent film. I never saw the bling ring either. But the poster for this film, or the UK poster, has three credits really close to each other. One of them says, written and directed by Sofia Coppola. The other credit says, written by Sofia Coppola. And the other credit, with a box around it, says, directed by Sofia Coppola. <laughs> and it's like, your, your name is mentioned three times right next to each other for the two things you did on this film. It, that looks, even if that's contractual, you would look at that and say, no, that looks silly, I can't have that. It's, yeah. yeah, it's a little excessive. It's really excessive, yeah. But anyway, but no, I, I have heard things about, about The Beguiled, and the way that you talk about it does uh, yeah, make me want to go and see it, so I will go and see The Beguiled. So my next film um, is Get Out. We've talked about this as well. Horror cinema, I think, is, is typically at its best, or is often at its best, when it's addressing social issues, and it's doing them in that way that horror cinema can where it will exaggerate something into horrific and often black comic realms. And I think the Get Out does that very well in terms of the black experience in modern America, about a lad who goes to stay with his white girlfriend and her liberal parents, played by Bradley Whitford and Catherine Keener, and you just know that there's something just a little bit off about these people and their... And is it just the fact that they're you know, right on liberals and it's all coming across as a bit awkward because they don't quite know what to say? It's, it's yeah. It, it, that's the thing, you know, the way I sort of... It is Guess Who's Coming to Dinner sort of reimagined as a horror film. Because in that film, yeah. obviously, you have these two very very sort of staunch liberals who you know, would be horrified to think that of themselves, you know, as anything but the most open-minded... Progressive progressive. Thinking. Yeah. And uh, I, I really liked Get Out. I didn't, I didn't love it. But partly because I didn't find it as scary as I was hoping, or as te- or quite as tense as I was hoping to. I thought it was really effective in some of the psychological things it did. But I was waiting for it to uh, to cut a little deeper, if you'll if you'll pardon that. I, yeah. But you know, I I really enjoyed it, but mostly as sort of a surface experience. Oh, I thought there was more going on there. Um, what's your next one? Oh, uh, my next one will probably be. I'm trying to think. We're talking about black experiences in America. Moonlight. Oh, Moonlight. Okay. Moonlight, which is still, you know, uh, strong contender for my film of the year. If something displaces that, again, it's been a remarkable year. For um, a film of the year? For film of the year, yeah. Wow, okay. Well, I would say... I mean, yeah, I'll hold off. I'm not many of your other films on that list would supply... And it's, it's an interesting one, Moonlight. I saw Moonlight later than a lot of people. We are in the Online Film Critics Society. Moonlight won Best Film and Best Director and Best Supporting Actor... And I hadn't seen the film when it, I couldn't vote for that film because I just hadn't been able to see it. We didn't get a screener of it in this country, and there hadn't been any screenings I'd gone to because I'd missed one at the London Film Festival. So, and then when I came to watch Moonlight, I thought this is—it's you know—don't get me wrong, it's a four-star film. It's a—it's it's a good, well-crafted film with three different actors playing one character at different stages in in their life. And I think the triumph of the film for me was that you never, for a doubt. Um, for a second doubt that they are the same character these three different people I just didn't think it really added up to it it, it didn't have the emotional punch that I thought it was going to have and I actually thought that it was a lot of it fell a bit flat um, I just think there were certain scenes where I was slightly worried that yeah, they, they could feel flatter what really sold it to me is well, almost the film I've been comparing it to is Carol I, you know, Stranger, another LGBT film that is, in its very bones, a kind of plea for grace and decency in a world that too rarely allows for those things. True. Um, and, and it does have this ethereal quality to it. 
and it's very it's very much I, mean, I think that this is something that really appeals to me in films it's it's in the moment in a way that sort of my film of last year Patterson was and it what is, do you mean by in in the moment it's sort of about almost indescribable indescribable human experiences on almost by a second by second basis there's, there's a dinner scene in Moonlight where everything where he, you know there's this potential relationship that hangs in the balance but it's hangs in the balance in a way that's completely unspoken and it's just two people who haven't seen each other in a long time and whether or not you know you'd believe that based on their chemistry they could really have something but this thing could live or die on a look on something as simple as you know whether that that moment that moment lands and these tiny little actions and it really generates like a feeling of putting you you know sort of even the smallest the smallest detail has such incredible importance I yeah I didn't I, that's the thing is that I know exactly the moment you mean I just did not get that from that scene I thought there's I don't think there's any peril here I think that we know how this is going to end I think we know that we know how this is going to play out um, I just didn't I just did not get that sense of this could go one of two ways and I don't know which way it's going to go it's not I mean I always yeah like it's a very <laughs> It's an old example, it's a very white example, but The Remains of the Day is a film that I find absolutely devastating for those reasons that you've just said about Moonlight. It's one of my, well, Remains of the Day is one of my top ten. All time. Yeah. Very good, because it's an absolutely awesome film. And I was left uh, absolutely devastated by that, and actually quite, quite heartbroken by the end of that film. And so I am all for these films where it's like, look, I am, yeah, I can, I can be manipulated quite easily. I am yeah, willing to go along with yeah, the emotion of a film. So I was a bit left a bit nonplussed by Moonlight in a way that I wasn't by Manchester by the Sea, which I saw actually the day before the Oscars, thinking I've got to see this film because I've only just seen Moonlight and Hacksaw Ridge, so I need to see Manchester. It's Manchester by the Sea is about the pressed white guy. Yeah. <laughs> Are you saying that I only understand the white experience? The depressed white experience. But now I kind of thought with Manchester by the Sea, I just thought it was like a better written film. I know, I, like... I, that being said, Manchester <laughs> by the Sea is pretty much, is very near the top of my top ten as well. So. So, and I know it's something like it's saying, right, so you don't like the one about the black gay man, but you do like the one about the depressed white man. Well, what does that say? It's like, I know there's a certain <laughs> element there that you can say well. It's, it's all right, you like, you like, get out, you've already covered your back. That's right, yes, indeed. It's like, <laughs> no, but everyone thinks I'm, I'm a monster now. The reason I compare those two is because lots of people saw that at the LFF. I had to see L because there was like a clash. You saw Manchester by the Sea and said five stars, you know, one of the best films of the year. Lots of people were nonplussed by it and just couldn't see why it was getting so lauded and said it just had these moments that went nowhere and actually a lot of crossover with Moonlight in terms of just these small moments where you're thinking, well, why is this happening? And why why is this important to show for this character? And I have to admit, uh, for Manchester, it was one of those where I just understood why you were just on on his wavelength. Yeah, indeed, and it's it's one of those things because... Uh, a friend of mine was just he he kind of got like a bit hung up on the the scene at the funeral is it at, at the funeral there's like a uh, no, yeah the scene at the funeral where he goes and gets food and yeah that's right yeah and it says like you know do you want something to eat do you want something to eat it's like, I don't want anything to eat I don't want anything to eat do you want to play do you want to play I don't want to play and it's like and I like that the fact that yeah for someone me it was trying just to be nice to somebody someone trying to be helpful yeah and, to, yeah to somebody who has no interest. Not because they're hostile or because, but it's because they're incapable. That's the thing. It's about a man who is incapable. Yes, and yeah, that's exactly what it was. And it was um, 
so I don't know why that resonated with me <laughs> anyway. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I thought the Manchester by the Sea was uh, was another five star film. I thought it was absolutely great. So, uh, what else do you have on your list? Uh, I've got the Quiet Passion. Yes, by my bet noir Terence Davis. I'm not a huge fan of Terence Davis. So why should I consider watching it? A quiet passion for basically the reasons I've just said. Why you should have liked Moonlight, <laughs> right? The fact that it's a very studied, poetic. It's about Emily Dickinson, uh, the poet Emily Dickinson, as played by Cynthia Nixon, and sort of just a look, a character study of her, and it's almost set entirely in her house, as she goes from being this young, sort of youngish, vivacious woman with friends, and, and sort of how the years embitter her and turn her into somebody who's really quite unlikable but her and her, and her own realisation she, she's sort of remaining self-aware and her own realisation of how she's changing and being unhappy with how her life's gone and yeah again just the, just the remarkable construction of it of turning the course of a life into you know finding the tragedy in the course of a life without ever having to overemphasise or, sp- or really spell anything out well that does say because I do like those um, those sort of films where you have Nothing huge happens. It's only two hours, so that's... Mm. Nothing really huge happens, but there's an accumulation of experience that adds up to someone's life. And I think, yeah, okay, right, cool, that's... And, and it's great, and it's got Keith Carradine in it, and I'll watch anything with Keith Carradine. Oh, Keith Carradine, oh my God. Just one of those, again, like, yeah, you mentioned Kurt Russell. Keith Carradine in Some Comfort, and other films from the we'll, 80s. We're we'll going back to McCabe <laughs> and Mrs. Miller. Oh, yes, he was in that as well, wasn't he? Yeah, he's been great in films. Anyway, okay, cool. So, uh, well, that's a quiet passion. The Handmaiden. So, part Chanuk's The Handmaiden, which is the incredibly lively, kinetic and dynamic, erotic film, Korean film that's based on the, is it Sarah Walters' book, Fingersmith? Yes. Uh, Which is, I think it's in Wales, isn't it, or something like that. Um, So, he's... He's taken that and based it in 1920s Japan, which was under Japanese rule at the time, and is about a handmaiden and a local con man who work their way into this Japanese lady of society um, into her home in order to scam her. But once they're in her house, they realise there are other things going on other in this forces, house. Yeah. Other forces at work. And it's incredibly... It's dark, it's erotic... It, but but for me it was it's the fact that it's really really funny as well. It's yeah. a really funny movie. It's this and that's the thing. I think Korean cinema has a, has a way of blending genre because it is this gothic, this funny, tragic, his, you know, historiographical, hysterical, psych- hysterical, <laughs> psychosexual melodrama. Yeah, that's for as much as a film can be that's directed by a man, a feminist statement as well about particularly about women. And the way that women can operate to and make something of themselves in a, stri- in a really, really patriarchal society. And I would say in that... A monstrously patriarchal society. Yeah, monstrously patriarchal. I mean, I would say that, yeah, Korea under Japanese rule is about as imperialistic and patriarchal as you're going to get. And yeah, it's. I thought it was uh, an absolutely wonderful film. And we will probably be uh, reviewing the three-hour cut, because it's two and a half hours, isn't it? And... There's a three-hour cut, a director's cut being released on Blu-ray, and hopefully we will be reviewing that in the next few weeks. And maybe having a discussion about Korean cinema in general. Or at least Park Chan-wook. At least Park Chan-wook, yeah. <laughs> I think Korean there's cinema enough, is quite a big one. quite a big one. meal, yeah. Yeah, indeed. Well, going on to, um, to another Korean film, so 
I always describe Korean cinema as all flavours in one. So if you're watching a violent thriller, there is going to be a scene of huge sentimentality that wouldn't look out of place in a 1950s melodrama. And if you're watching a rom-com, there's going to be at least one scene of real wince-inducing violence. (laughs) That's like... The tonal shifts in Korean cinema are one of the reasons I love it so much. It can really look... It can really jar to Western eyes. Like in terms if Hugh Grant just like, turned around and punched his leading lady. It would be like something like... Um, so, if Rennie Zellweger was... If they were having an argument and Rennie Zellweger was to pick up a knife and stick it in Hugh Grant, and then he would go, oh, oh! And then it would cut to him in the hospital, and it would be played for laughs at that point. But you would see an entry wound, and you would see blood coming uh, yeah, out. And, see, yeah. be, and that's kind of Korean cinema... And I think we yeah, can all agree that Bridget Jones would be much better if that happened. Uh, but yeah, so moving on to another Korean film, or a, a, a Korean co-production with Netflix, Okja, directed by Bong Joon-ho, who did The Host, and he did Snowpiercer, the criminally still unreleased in the UK Snowpiercer. Which is astounding, because it's one that... The... It's got Captain America in it, as <laughs> the lead. And it's got freaking Billy Elliot in it. And it's got John Hurt in it. And it's got Tilda Swinton in it. That's largely the Weinstein Company, isn't it? Well, that's... Yeah, the Weinstein Company completely fucked that film and then made it quite difficult to get released around the world. And I think that talking to someone who works for um, an indie UK distributor, I think it's just... it's just There are various rules around certain payments and certain revenue you can make from a film and a lot of it depends on when the film was released or when the, the year of the film's released and how many years have gone by since then it's all quite complicated and I think there's no person now just seen as too old to really buy and it's like it needs to be put out by somebody I mean really it is an absolutely fantastic film but anyway Okja so it looks like Bong Joon-ho has had more of a um, a better relationship with Netflix, who have let him do pretty much what he wanted with this mad film. That, as you were saying, it's an anime. It's an anime, but it's live action because it's about a girl and her really big pig, like a, geno- um, a genetically modified or genetically super created super pig. That's just a bit more of a hippo, oh, yeah. And the evil company that made this and now want it back, and she doesn't want to let it go. So there's this huge adventure, adventure around it oh. in terms of people wanting to help her keep it and other people wanting to help the government take it back. And, it, yeah, it's great. It's essentially what we were saying. It's, it's a live-action anime. Yeah. That, yeah. Uh, yeah, in terms of just how it's shot and the energy behind it and the, the intention. Uh, not least in, you know, do you want to... The performance of uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, who plays the sort of celebrity veterinarian and gives a performance that looks like it's essentially just been translated into physical form, you know, out of, out of, out of drawing, out of illustration. Yes, it's, it looks like someone has been able to take an anime character and make them real, uh, like in that aha video <laughs> where the, he's a sketch and then he steps through the mirror. Become a real boy, yeah. He's become a real boy. Jake Gyllenhaal is a real anime boy in this film. Just the physicality, his, his flailing arms and legs, his wild facial expressions, the fact that his glasses make his eyes much bigger, and the tash, and the tash, and, and that Hawaiian shirt, and the little shorts. And there is there is a film, and I just cannot think of what the friggin' film. I think it might be Porco Rosso. Might have someone who's very 
very similar to him in that there is I think there's a Miyazaki film that has someone very similar to Jake Gyllenhaal it's like when he waves his hands you're imagining the lines in the air mm. around them mm. to, to denote movement that's right it's um, he's uh, but the film itself I mean it's it's all flavours in one part of me wishes it had been a kids film because it's a 15 for language and also I, it's only a BBFC but it's, um, it's an environment it's an anti-meat industry sort of environmentalist yeah. film isn't it well it's that's interesting because uh, I was reading uh, the Mark Kermode review he's a veggie we shouldn't hold that against him anyway he was saying that, I mean, can't um, wait because he's doing really well for himself no, so. <laughs> yeah 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 indeed yes <laughs> he's a veggie and he's, and he's yeah, the most famous film critic that this country has ever produced really so anyway he said it's not so much an anti-meat film as it is uh, kind of like an anti- capitalist film or like an anti-caring capitalism it kind of shows the lie of caring capitalism the hypocrisy the hypocrisy the hypocrisy of (laughs) of caring capitalism and that you can't have such a thing but I think it it would be nice if it was a kids film because I think kids would really quite like this because the young girl in it is just so amazing and um, I think that's true if this was a kids film it would be Babe Pig in the City (laughs) do do you reckon if it was a kids film that film would have got an enormous release it would be interesting. I think that... Because if it was a kid's film, you wouldn't... I'm not going to give any, any spoilers away, but it gets fucking dark at the end. I mean, really dark. To the point where I was surprised that the BBFC didn't say it's a 15 for bad language and also that bit at the end. <laughs> because it's like, Jesus, you would not put this into a 12 movie. You just wouldn't. Uh, written by John Ronson as well, the great journalist John Ronson, uh, whose book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, you should all read, because very good. And whose film, The Men Who Stole It Goats, you can probably go and miss, but you should definitely read the book. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, so this is uh, this film, again, has Tilda Swinton, it has Giancarlo Esposito, it's got Jake Gyllenhaal, it's got Lily Collins, who of course is in Rules Don't Apply. It's got Shirley Henderson. Has got Shirley Henderson, and she's very good in it, yeah. You know, she, she she's very good at it, she very much fits the mould because... She's quite. She's probably. She's best known probably as Ms. Moaning Merkel in the Harry Potter films. Yes. And there is that degree of you know grotesquery in in all the characters. These are very. These are anime characters. They're very much larger than life. They're very. It's it's a really lovely film. Oh, it is. It's um, and the young girl is called Mija, and she's played by Anne Sehun. She's just great. She's great because she just will not stop chasing Okja, the big. Okja. Okja. <laughs> and there's. It's one of those films that when it ends, that's what you want to say because you're so fried up by it. It's so lovely. Oh, yeah. Um, it's on Netflix, so you guys can... Oh, watch. yeah, yeah, and it's on I Netflix. Like, <laughs> I'm assuming that everybody who's listening to this has Netflix or has access to Netflix. Yes, indeed. Just yeah, watch it. You can watch it right... Like, as soon as we're done talking, and it won't be that much longer... You, honestly. You, yeah, honestly. <laughs> um, you watch watch Okja. It is really good. And, yeah, the fact that it is just released... It's been caught up in... was actually created part of the controversy as well. There's been... Lots of criticism against uh, Netflix for not giving films a proper theatrical release or um, a proper release, which means they get ignored come awards time. So Beast of No Nation was a film that everyone said should have got Oscar nominations and was really overlooked because it was a Netflix film and they didn't really screen it properly for awards consideration. is a film that is getting a cursory cinema release in this country. I was lucky enough to see it at BAFTA, so um, uh, so my friend Adrian uh, took me to BAFTA to watch it and it was great to see it on a big screen. There is another part of me that thinks, well, who's going to pay for this film if not Netflix? If they, give this like... a, if they give this a cinematic release, I will go and see it. 
Um, I think it has one. I didn't. I think. I think Curzon have put it on in Curzon. Okay. In a few of their screens, um, oh. it's definitely got like okay, a small. Fine. If if Cineworld give it, a, if, if Cineworld give it, yeah, only it it's covered by my Cineworld card. That's right, because it is about sixteen quid to go and see a film at the Curzon Soho, and Jesus, it's a bit expensive, isn't it? Anyway, so but yes, so there is the argument that they should be releasing these films theatrically before putting them on Netflix. There is another argument that says they. They're funding Snow. Snow. They're funding. They're funding. They're films. funding really, really interesting. Let them do films. what they want. After Snowpiercer, which again you can't see in the cinema because the Weinstein's really fucked him on the um, once the film was shot. They then want to take it away and re-edit it, and then they didn't. But they just put it out onto iTunes. So really, they did uh, something worse than what Netflix did. Netflix seems to have given them complete creative freedom and has made something that looks like it. Well, happened. if they haven't, you've got to wonder what the actual what the film he wanted to yeah, make. Yeah, like. yes. If they had notes for this, my God, the original film, Jesus. But uh, so anyway, I think we've we've covered Okja. So what else have you got on your list? Um, shall we just do a quick rundown of what's of what's? Yeah, indeed, I think so. Um, Twentieth Century Woman. Yep. Um, I haven't seen that. I admit. Really lovely seventies um, house in California. It's about this this, this sort of you know, nuclear family, including sort of Annette Benning and Greta and Greta Gerwig, and and really just again again a, a distillation of a certain time in a certain place and certain attitudes. Uh, Silence, the Martin Scorsese film, an examination of religion in Japan in, in Japan during the time when what well, it was out uh, outlawed outlawed. Um, or oh, Christianity was Christian, uh, a monster calls, which I believe is on both our lists. Yep, indeed. Um, Personal shopper, which is the uh, the. Uh, the Sayers film, um, which is uh, actually arriving uh, on DVD uh, on Monday on Sky, as, oh, right. as is Get Out. All oh, right, cool. Oh, okay. um, oh, and which I really recommend. It's a it's a it's a real tonal balancing act between sort of a ghost story and a, and a thriller and a drama, and it really and it really works. It's beautiful, and and it really proves that Kristen Stewart is is a, a remarkable talent. Right, and yeah, let's give it a look. I've heard. Mixed things about it. Some people aren't quite as keen on it as you are, but I think, like, yeah, yeah, I need to give it. A and uh, there's Logan, yes, um, which we have discussed in detail. I, I also, Logan Noir, which I really recommend you seeing. Um, it's currently available as an extra on the DVD of Logan on uh, at Sky on Sky Store. But it's, yeah, they've. Uh, Which work for again? Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, they, they've essentially they've re- they've uh, redone the cinematography for it, and it's worth it just to see uh, the light glinting off Anthony. Uh, not actually, not sorry. Off, um, Stewart's Stewart. bald bonds when he's sitting in the back of the <laughs> sitting in the back of a limo. Uh, there's the Love Witch, the Annabella, uh, Samantha Robinson film. Yeah, seventies hallucinogenic. It's it's a, it's a seventies melodrama in like they've she's just made a seventies melodrama. You know they say that Apocalypse Now is Vietnam. Yeah, then this is a seventies melodrama. Yeah, in the in the purest in the purest and it's feminist deconstruction. Um, for my sort of special mention. Uh, I've got the founder, mm. which I couldn't quite and that, that a Michael Keaton film I couldn't quite justify including in this list. Um, Don't worry, I've got it in mind. <laughs> uh, and uh, as for my worst film of the year, go on. Uh, you know, we're only six months in, so there's time for things to get there's things time for things to go downhill. It's Assassin's Creed. Yes, which we discussed. In I'm guessing if it wasn't the first podcast of this year, then when the one the very early ones, it was the first po- the first as podcast being this year. generally driven awful. Yeah, it's awful. Um, God, that film was bad. Okay, cool. So, like, a quick rundown of the rest of mine then. Uh, Wonder Woman, which we talked about on episode twenty-four of the podcast, and I think we all know why that's such a great film. Um, the best DC film since The Dark Knight Rises, in my humble opinion. That isn't really saying much because I've not been on a 
a good run of late, but Wonder Woman is a genuinely, really, actually, yeah, a great movie with third act issues. Um, a Silent Voice is a lovely anime um, about a lad who, at school, he's not, he's just an arsehole. He's not bad, he's just an arsehole. And he, and he picks on this girl who's deaf and in junior high and then years later in high school the guilt of this has built up over years and years and years to the point where he has to go and find her and, and apologise and it's actually it's about two and a quarter hours and it's all about him trying to apologise to this girl and kind of trying to get back into her life to show her that he's not a bad guy that he was just like a stupid kid And but there's also people around because none of the classmates really welcomed uh, the deaf girl to their class. It was just that he was the most obvious in terms of the bullying that happened. So there's all these different things about how other characters react to what he's doing. And yeah, it's a, it's a really, really nice film. Logan, which I've got on order, so I will watch Logan Noir uh, when it comes through. Uh, the Founder, which is the Ray Kroc, as you said. Um, a Ray Kroc, the founder, well, of McDonald's. The guy who is known as the founder of of McDonald's and how he became known as that and the kind of things you need to do to be successful at business. Manchester by the Sea we've talked about, Okja we've talked about, um, Monster Calls which was on yours as well. All I'll say about Monster Calls is when I saw it for the second time, um, so first time was at the LFF, second time was at a public screening, at the end of the film there was a couple in their 20s and there was um, a friend with them and the friend was so overwhelmed by the movie that she was in floods of tears but also kind of like was laughing saying sorry you just need to give me a minute I can't stand up yet and leave this cinema I need to compose myself and I thought yeah that's that's how good this film is I've only really started and maybe 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 uh, maybe films are getting better at it maybe I'm just getting sentimental in my old age but I've only really started cr- like properly like like tearing up you know occasionally actually crying but mostly just tearing up at films in the last few years <laughs> I think it's something that happens as you get older. I think it's like when I was a kid, I loved Jaws. <laughs> when I was about you know, six years old, I just adored Jaws. And I, and I still adore it now. It's the second best film I've made. But when I was a teen, I hadn't seen Jaws for a few years. When I was a teen, I watched Jaws and the opening, I thought, my God, she is in absolute agony and she is absolutely terrified. And my God, this film is kind of awful. It's just awful what's happening to her. And it's like, well, that, I've never had that before because it's like, because you're a kid and you just have no real fair reference, it's all just really exciting. And I think as you get older, you just become a bit softer, really, or really right wing, <laughs> or both. <laughs> but yeah, really, yeah. really sentimentally yeah, right wing. Yeah, yeah, like the worst combination of those two. So talking about running through fields of wheat. Yeah, or <laughs> like cutting people, or cutting people's social security whilst cutting people's social security. What's the worst? What's the naughtiest thing you've ever done? Well, there's that time. I'd- Yes. I bribed a load of fundamentalist Christians to uh, fucking anyway to shore up my government yeah, yeah to okay. shore up my failing government but yes I I would yeah I blub more at film I, I found myself kind of choking up at the end of the second episode of Daredevil <laughs> thinking because it has such a great emotional end to the end of episode 2 season 1 go and watch it it's great Manchester by the Sea got me Moonlight got me Monster Calls got me a bit I'd say the ones that got me here it was only really a monster calls that caused me to choke up. Okay, so honourable mentions. Um, so one of your favourite films of the year, Ghost in the Shell. Um, so we are, so there's a whole podcast where um, where Rob and I talk about the decisions the filmmakers made in 
in the making of Ghost in the Shell. And yeah, it's the best were... way to describe it. The decision, <laughs> decisions were made. <laughs> and if they were good decisions or bad decisions, it all depends on which side. Well, your opinion on racism. <laughs> on opinion on racism. Well, and your, and your opinion on outrage culture and how what you think of that anyway. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, it's, it's PC gone mad. Well, I wouldn't. I would just say that outrage culture sometimes can't see the nuance in certain things. And anyway, um, and sometimes <laughs> finds sometimes finds an issue there when maybe there isn't an issue there. Japanese people didn't think there was an issue there. <laughs> I just wanted the outrage culture people to then say that the, that the Japanese people were wrong <laughs> about their own representation. Well, very quickly, there's been a small degree of controversy surrounding um, the beguiled because. Oh. The, uh, the the slave character from the original film's been it, it, it doesn't appear in it. Oh, right. People are going, they can't believe they got rid of characters who's, who's a woman of color. And watching the watching the remake, it was like the re-adaptation. It was like, no, there's just not space for that character to appear to be to be anything more than dealt to deal with the. If you, if that character is present, immediately brings up issues of race and slavery. That this film, you know, is like ninety minutes long, does not have the time. To deal with, and there is a version of this film that perhaps could deal with it. Well, the original. Yeah, the original. <laughs> well, to an, yeah, to an extent, but it's like it's yeah, it's one of those things where like it feels like people are being outraged about that without necessarily being knowledgeable. It's, it's like you mm. know, I, I'm I'm not I'm outraged by that in theory without having seen the film or really having done any research into. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because it's one of those things where you think. The, the original film was made in 1971. It was based on a book. The depiction or the treatment of a black slave character in 71 versus 2017 could be different. Is it a mistake to have excised that yeah, character? In the context of this one, that character was always going to be marginal. And you can't, yeah. I don't think, in modern cinema, afford to, afford to marginalise that character. Well, that's interesting. Because, well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to see this film, obviously. It sounds like quite quite a fascinating film. And to end with, just on a an offbeat note, the um, my other honourable mention for a film that does not work consistently, but my God, it's an interesting film, is Rules Don't Apply, the Warren Beatty Howard Hughes film. A strong contender for my Mad as Arseholes this year. Yeah, it's yeah, it's up there. It is number one as my Mad as Arseholes this, this year. A film that is basically Howard Hughes. The first hour is just really exciting as you're in this new world and all these different things that have anything could happen it's all just really he's all over the place the film's all over the place but really really giddy things are happening the the freedom of having unlimited wealth and on these two young characters played by old Narenreich and Lily Collins and then the second hour is really what it's like to really know Howard because it becomes darker and it becomes more erratic and it becomes frustrating and and you're thinking well there's this is not a wholly successful film, but a real filmmaker is working here. And there's a really weird religious element to it as well. It's all about the fall from grace of Lucifer and Adam and Eve and yeah, shit like that. Unlike last year's Mad, Mad as Arseholes film, I don't think this one's getting a sequel. Because last year's Mad as Arseholes, yes, it won't get a sequel, but last year's Mad as Arseholes film was The Accountant. The Ben Affleck is an autistic hitman and Jesus Christ was that film with Mad as Arseholes but it is getting a sequel, and huzzah! Yeah, I mean, I think we walked out of that film saying if if we found out there was a sequel that was shot back to back and it's coming out next week, then we then yeah, we'll be I'd here. Go, this I'd, time go, next see, I'd go and see the sequel to that now. Yeah, it did. Yeah, the, you know, the, <laughs> the accountant, death and taxes. Definitely, it has to be called the accountant, death and taxes, because <laughs> he is an accountant 
and a hitman and is autistic and it's like this should be really quite offensive and I don't think that it's been treated in a particularly sensitive way or nuanced way it's just so mad that it has this kind of other charm of its own it's not otherworldly it's just this it's just because this is also a studio film. This is yeah. a film with a, with yeah, a right. budget that is not set out to be this weird. No, no, that's things that it really isn't. It's one of those films where I think he was thinking could be some of this could be one of those genre films that gets award consideration because I'm so committed to this character and the weird coping mechanisms that he has. It's you know kind of you know. Google Hunting meets John Rain Man meets John Wick. Kind of. Yeah, as you said, it's uh, it's Rain Man meets Batman. <laughs> And it's like, yes, that's exactly what it is. Rain Man meets Batman. I hope they don't go into his past because we don't need to know anything more about that because the whole first film about his past. If it's just him on a mission, if it just, if they do a series of Bond films with the accountant as the lead, a mission of film, I'm happy. Socially awkward Bond, that'd be... Socially awkward Bond. Um, like Bond who's just not picking up on social cues. <laughs> that's right, yes. It's, um, like the beautiful woman comes over and like flirts with him and he's just a bit like, I don't know what to do with that. Yes, he'll just start talking about tax theory. Socially baffled Bond. There we go, that would be great. Cool, okay, so thank you for that. That was <laughs> a lively discussion, I think I think you'll agree. Um, all in all, it's been... It is, yeah, it is a good year for film this year. Why are people kind of saying that, that film's dying? I just think they're not looking at enough films, really. There is a lot of interesting stuff being released right now. And a lot of stuff that's coming out in the mainstream is, that's, that's really interesting. But um, well, I've said about 65 new films this year. What's, what's our next one? Oh, Dunkirk. It's going to be Dunkirk, isn't it? And, of course, War for the Planet of the Apes. Yes, indeed, which I have seen, but let's talk about it on the next one because we're out of time now. Yeah, War for Planet of the Apes comes out next week and then Dunkirk's towards the end of the month. So we could squeeze in War for Planet of the Apes if you see it and do one just on that and then well, Dunkirk. We time could, will tell, We folks. could do Dunkirk potentially next Friday or next weekend. Oh, yes. Because there were, there's a screening of it at work and I'll have seen more of the Planet of the Apes in the, the week. Oh, yes, that's a very good point. All right, then. Yes, all right, cool. Um, anyway, this <laughs> little peek behind the curtain at how the magic happens there. On that note, <laughs> thank you very much. And thank you very much. And thank you, Rob. And thank you. Thank you.